Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. And I'm Janet. This is Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, the Family Proclamation. And we have our friend, Janet Erickson, with us today. We're thrilled to learn from her. She's an expert in the field of family studies. Thank you for being here today. Here. So let's, let's introduce this, this topic with a reality. It doesn't matter who you are, where you live, what your gender is, what your nationality is, what your language is, we all have one th at least one thing in common. We are part of the family of God, and on this earth we were all born in some sort of a setting that we now have to figure out how to navigate moving forward in mortality. So this document becomes really, really helpful for us in navigating that that uh, water moving forward, how do we live to the greatest degree of, of happiness and joy and peace that we can find in family settings. So beautiful, Tyler. I, I appreciate so much how you started because I think that one of the things that this does for us is it declares right out we are beloved sons and daughters of heavenly parents, that we belong to an eternal family, and it establishes that identity. And I sometimes I'll think, do we really, really get how incredible that was for the prophet Joseph to reveal that truth, to think that we literally are the children of not only a God, a heavenly father, but of a heavenly mother, and what that means to all of us, that we are, we are equals, we are, we are, both genders are equal, um, it establishes so much about our um, working together as brothers and sisters, it establishes so much about our purpose and our identity and what our capacity is. And so sometimes we can get hung up in, in the imperfections of our family life here on earth. It's like, ah, this does not meet the proclamation. But I think when we see I am part, all of us are part of this divine family, that the proclamation lays out what that divine family looks like. That's a beautiful concept, Janet. It, it, it strikes me as very symbolic if you take the, the actual copy of the proclamation to the world on the family and you were to put it up, you can see that it, that it has these four sides to it. And often, if we're not careful, what we'll end up doing is we'll, we'll treat the actual proclamation as a box. This is this ideal box, and we look at all of the people in our family and in our social circles and in, in our circle of influence around us, and we'll try to get all of those people to now fit in this box. And some of them have a hard time fitting in. Why? Because what the proclamation does is it lays out the ideal, the best case scenario, the 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 shining beacon on the hill as far as what a family can become in the ideal setting. But most of you watching this, looking around your world and your family realize, wait, I don't live at all times in an ideal setting. And so, rather than treating the proclamation and what we're going to cover today as a weapon that you can roll this thing up and then beat people with it like a club to try to beat them into submission, but rather recognize the fact that 
true principles taught by prophets, along with some correction in here and some warnings. It's very prophetic, this document, which is the, the role of a prophet is not to come into this life. God doesn't send prophets down to simply go around to everybody and pat them on the back and say, great job, just keep up the good work, don't change a thing. That's not what prophets do. And so the proclamation comes with some correction and some ideal uh, setting the bar very high, and some people feel like they're, they're just getting beat up by it. Yeah, Tyler, I appreciate that so much. I think so often we will have stigma, especially in the gospel of Jesus Christ, around different family forms, things that are not ideal. And as opposed, as opposed to seeing it as, oh, here's the divine light to help guide us in the patterns of heaven. We can, we can start to feel like, do I belong or do they belong or am I good enough? Because these family relationships are a place of such vulnerability where our hearts are really most exposed and our efforts are most exposed. And rather than seeing it as some way to divide ourselves or see ourselves as better or not belonging or belonging, it's a, it's a beautiful place to say the Lord is showing me a light of the divine pattern to follow as a path to happiness. That's beautiful. And it's this idea that some people say, no, I I reject the proclamation or I reject the words of the prophet or this part of it, and and I push it back because I want to listen to other voices. The fact is, is every, we all have our agency. We can, we can tune our ears and our eyes and our minds and our hearts to whatever sources we want. And we're not in the business of telling you or, or, judging or condemning people for making whatever decision they make. That's part of life. What we're in the business of doing is inviting, encouraging people to turn to God, to trust Him, and to follow His prophets and the direction that the current prophets and apostles are giving us right here, right now, because that's the pattern that Christ established. It's not, it's not internet sources, it's not the quote-unquote experts of the world who are going to lead us to the greatest truths and the greatest light and knowledge regarding family structure and, and finding the greatest degree of happiness in our family relationships. It's going to be the prophets of God. So, if we can look at this document instead of as a box, to try to force conformance, but rather as a charitable lens through which we can look at people and find ways to connect with them and understand them and listen to them and at times mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort rather than condemning or harshly judging them and pushing them away, Um, then I think collectively we're going to come up with many more answers given to us from heaven than if we choose to just continue to contend or fight over some of these very, very sensitive and and close to the heart, as you were saying, issues as we move in. Now, should we jump in? Yes. So the very first paragraph, as Janet already mentioned, I love the fact that it establishes the the authority of these statements that are about to come with the first line, we, the First Presidency and the Council of the Twelve Apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's kind of unique when that happens, when all 15 of them come together in unanimity and say, we solemnly proclaim, now they're they're going to make the statements, but it's that powerful 
uh, unanimous voice of these 15 prophets, seers, and revelators given originally back in 1995, in September of 95, in the General Relief Society session yes. by President Hinckley. So, the first line, we solemnly proclaim that marriage between a man and a woman is ordained of God and that the family is central to the Creator's plan for the eternal destiny of his children. Janet, what would you be able to say to that from your years and years of study and research on family issues? Tyler, it's, as a graduate student, I was just <clears throat> talking about this the other day. As a graduate student, I was exposed to all this data about family, and I'll never forget the first time when I'm learning about this dramatic increase in children being born to unmarried parents. It went from 6% in 1960 to 41% in 2014, has hovered around that. And then looking at the risks to children born into that situation, the increased risks in a host of areas, developmentally and emotionally and, and psychologically and even physically, and then looking at the data around divorce and that that rupture is associated with increased risk for children. Then looking at the data around cohabitation, very often, though, as normative as it's become, cohabitation is associated with rupture in relationship, the likelihood of breakup, and so children in those situations are likely to experience that. Then looking at, looking at some of the data in other structures, other family structures that are non-biological, non-nuclear, we might say, a married mother and father, and I remember looking at it and thinking, oh my goodness, the the, that marriage plays such a core role as this foundation from which society can function. We know marriage is good for men and it's good for women um, in terms of their productivity and things like that we'll find for men and for women also. And then economically it's a good thing. Children that are the remarkable data that shows that children who don't come from married families but are surrounded in their culture by married families, the likelihood of them coming up out of poverty is, that's the biggest predictor is the culture of marriage around them. So i just thinking, oh my goodness, and it, it was painful, it's painful sometimes to teach about it because all of us experience gap between the real and ideal. I think about myself, do I, am I giving my children what the proclamation says, right? Children have, have a right to be nurtured in love and righteousness and to be taught, given the spiritual gifts that they need and the physical gifts that they need, and am I doing that? And I know there's this gap. But, and so it can be painful to talk about that. And maybe stigma around family structures can be especially painful in the church. But I also find that it's healing because it helps us recognize why there would be pain around some things and where the Savior's help comes in. And, and if we don't acknowledge that, right, if we don't acknowledge to a child who experiences divorce, for example, that there is there's real pain, that's a traumatic event in your life, um, and also offer that promise that we all belong to a whole and complete family, the eternal family of loving heavenly parents, and that they have sent a redeemer to offer healing to all of us in that gap, then we have done, we have done what the proclamation asks us to do, right? To, to lead us in a healing path that helps us acknowledge the realities, these patterns that are divine, and also the Savior is the healer. That, that to me is the, the most important thing that we could uh, talk about in this particular uh, document is what you're just mentioning here, this difference. I love the play on words of the, dis of the difference between the real and the ideal, and the fact is for every one of us there are gaps. Some of those gaps are bigger at different times than they may be for others, but there are gaps for all of us, 
and the most important principle that I see is we can't hope to accomplish that ideal without the Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ takes our very best efforts, whatever they may be, as we try to approximate to the best of our capacity that ideal that's laid out here, then he, he more than makes up for all the difference. He empowers us along the way, and, and that fact that we all have an absolute ideal family up in heaven. And now we're trying to do our best to approximate that with our mortal situations, but we at least have that to lean on, and we always have the Savior to lean on. That's, oh, such that's a empowering. Gift, isn't it? And that He will do that for us. He will teach us the divine pattern as He heals us. It's so wonderful. We can learn. We can learn what it means, for example, for a child to have married parents and the rupture that that's associated with inside of them, because they identify not just with one parent individually, but they identify with that union, and that that's a divine truth, and, and that we can recognize that with the pain and recognize the Redeemer's capacity to offer healing to all of us, as you noted, in the, in the true gap that we all experience, right? Everybody's got it, and some more than others, but we've all got a gap. So, this next paragraph is, is I think, equally profound, because you'll notice the very first word, it's all. He doesn't say most. It's all human beings, male and female, are created in the image of God. That, that is kind of theological. <laughs> that's a thunderbolt. It's turning on the, the world upside down. <laughs> yes, yes. That male and female are created in the image of God, that we have a heavenly father and a heavenly mother, and we're created in their image, male and female, and each is a beloved spirit, son or daughter of heavenly parents. And as such, each has a divine nature and destiny. I love that nature that is divine yes. and a destiny that is divine. We bring with us this divine nature and we will take with us a divine destiny and potential if we live up to it. You'll notice in all of biology, what do sons and daughters generally end up doing? They end up growing up to become something like their parents. If we let God prevail in our life, and part of letting God prevail for me in a family setting is to, to trust him and trust that he knows some things that maybe I don't. Maybe culturally we don't understand yet that God's thoughts and ways are higher than our ways, so we, we trust him and we say, you know what, there are a lot of people who wrestle with the principles in, in that second paragraph for a variety of reasons. It could be a biological child that is born where they can't quite tell what the gender is. It could be questions of gender identity through life. We get it. There are a lot of really, really hard questions that, that you and family members in, in certain settings are wrestling with. But again, we're not trying to teach all of the exceptions. We're trying to teach the ideal principles, and then we deal with those exceptions as they may come up in our families with the help of the Lord Jesus Christ to guide us in that, in that avenue forward without saying, well, now I have to pick between loving my child or my family member who's struggling or, or maybe it's you yourself, to then make a, a choice between I'm going to have to either choose between following the prophets or loving my family member. Yeah. If we turn to the Savior, 
and we keep praying. Even though we don't have, collectively, we don't have all the answers yet, we have enough to move forward in faith, trusting him that answers will come, direction and guidance and comfort and strength will come as they need to come to help us to continue to move forward. That's so powerful, Tyler. I'll never forget um, sitting amidst a group of representatives of different religious organizations. And I was sitting by a Jewish rabbi, and on the left was was um, a pastor from uh, from an evangelical faith, and the whole gate, the whole gamut of religions rep- was represented. And I realized I am the only one who knows that my gender as a woman continues into the eternities, and that w- that I am born in the image of God. And so, all at once, right? It dignifies womanhood half of the human race, this Mm -hmm. statement does. It tells us about our relationships being divine and familial, which tells us this is about all of eternity and the principles and truths are really about helping us learn how to be capable of the kinds of divine relationships that our heavenly parents share. We We are being changed so that we can live and be the kind of people in those relationships because that is joy. That is eternal joy, and it grounds the gospel right there in a familial, in a relational reality, relational truth. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think it's important to note here for a minute that of all of the titles that Jesus uses to refer to God, now keep in mind, we're talking about God, the sovereign of the universe, the, the, the one who who oversaw the creation of worlds without number through the only begotten Son. Of all the titles, Lord, God, Almighty, Endless, Infinite, Eternal, all of these these amazing attributes and titles, which one does Jesus use by far more than any of the others to refer to God? It's the familial term. It's Father. It's Abba. It's, It's this family connection. Now, you're going to find yourself at times in settings where you're surrounded by family, by nuclear and or extended family, and at times it can be very (laughs) – Janet, as you mentioned earlier, few places reveal your weakness more than the family because of the the intimate nature, and it's pretty hard to hide all the warts. The exposure, right? Yeah. And and my kids know more about my badness (laughs) than anybody. It's pretty hard to, to hide that. And when you're in family gatherings, it's pretty easy to get annoyed and frustrated and to see what's wrong with everybody else and what they're, what they're not doing right or how you wish they would be different. So, as we move further into this document, I think it's important to, to begin with a spirit of charity, mm-hmm. a spirit of compassion for loved ones in your family who also have a gap in between their real life and the ideal, and to not emphasize the relationship based on the gap, but to emphasize the relationship based on how the Lord can help you still feel love and kindness for them. And if they're in a category of, of life that's, that's really wrestling and struggling with these principles here, all the more reason for us to love them and to listen to them and to show compassion and kindness rather than condemnation and judgment when we, when we spend time with them or disdain when we're around them, but to love them. 
feels like the core of that feeling of love is for others comes from our feeling loved by these heavenly parents that we have. And I was thinking how so often we will feel, we will, we will not have a clear view of what our heavenly parents are like. I think we, we carry distorted ideas from our experience or from the heritage we write, uh, religious inheritances that are distorted. But really when we talk about heavenly parents, what that means is a particular kind of love and devotion and self-sacrifice, a desire for our well-being above their own that, is, that defines our heavenly parents and the love they feel for us. And as I'm just thinking of people that I've been close to who struggle with a variety of things, whether it's um, they experience same-sex attraction and are grappling with what that means for their lives. In the moment when they feel, I am totally and completely loved by my heavenly father. I am totally and completely accepted as I am, even as he and she see my potential. That is when healing begins. And I, I thought, I'm sure many of us in our efforts to love, right, our desires to love our children better, to love those around us better, if we started by being open to the love that our Father has for us and our Redeemer has for us, then we are we are fully accepting of ourselves in that journey and able to, to give that love to our family members. That familial relationship is a whole lot. <laughs> Having heavenly parents means a whole lot. It does. It's profound. So for some of us, actually most of us, we read this document, we've been talking about the ideal and the real, and we all aspire for these ideals. And I think about failed parenting moments in my own life or fa failed family moments. Uh, there's plenty of them. <laughs> and I just think if people wanted to create a comedy hour or comedy year, they would just kind of go through these. And let me share one with you. And at the time was actually a bit traumatic for me. I was a, a young father and uh, we, my son David was out of his crib. So he's now sleeping in a bed. And sometimes he wouldn't stay in bed going to sleep when he should. He'd get out of bed and want to run around. And uh, who among us as adults really wants to go to bed on time anyway? So I was struggling to help him stay in bed. When he's in a crib, it's like a cage, you can keep him in. And so I remember one night, I actually closed the door on him. Now this, he was like a year and a half old. He was too small to get up and open the door. So the room's totally dark, the door has been closed, he's now cut off from the two people in his life that love him the most, his mom and his dad, and he just was pounding on the door, screaming and crying for about 30 minutes. And I just think, I just sat there thinking, what kind of parent would lock their child in a cave and ignore the pounding on the door to let me out? And I remember thinking at that time, the trauma I must have created in his mind. Well, the years have rolled on, many years. He's now a happy, well-adjusted teenager. And I don't even think he remembers this. And the point here is that at the time, I felt like I was doing the right thing when I shut the door on him. As the situation unfolded, I realized I made a kind of a bad choice that in the moment was really traumatic for him. In fact, so traumatic, he fell asleep at the door. I couldn't even open the door later to actually get in to help him. I actually had to you know, budget a little bit to get him to wake up to move so I could get in and give him a hug. But 
even though I thought I failed as a parent, it didn't have like this long-term lasting damage on him. Now there are things that we can do that have long-term damage. I guess I just wanna lower the temperature a bit. <laughs> that all of us struggle at times in our best attempts to do what is right, do well. And sometimes we make mistakes and we cause pain or trauma for others. But the atonement is so broad and vast, God can make up our deficit. I might say a shout out to my older brother, Brad Halverson, who when he heard of this story and I was kind of at my wit's end, how do I help my young son? Uh, he offered this advice. He's like, your child needs to know that you're there. And so what you do is when you're leaving the room, you reassure them and say, I'll be back in one minute. Can you just wait one minute? I'll be right back. And you get a timer and you come back in within one minute and check in see how they're doing, make sure they're feeling okay, and then say, I'll be back in two more minutes. Is it okay if I just go back, go for just two minutes? I'll be right back. And then you do that again. You come back in, make sure you're on time, two minutes. Then you move to five minutes and 10 minutes. And by the time you get to about 15 minutes, they're asleep. But what you've done is created the sense of they are loved, you're with them, you care about them. So I appreciate my family teaching me how to be a better family member, and I hope wherever you are in your life, try not to spend too much time beating yourself up over past mistakes. Learn from them, move on, and just know that God has given us this, this life to practice to get better, to be more like Him. There's a beautiful part in the proclamation that makes a promise as we're talking about these ideas of, of gap between real and ideal, and it says this, sacred ordinances and covenants available in holy temples, make it possible for individuals to return to the presence of God and for families to be united eternally. And I love that idea that ordinances and covenants that open priesthood power to us, which is the atonement power in our lives, enable us to have the grace, that enabling power to become the kind of people who can live in these beautiful eternal relationships. So as I struggle as a mother, as I struggle with patience, and as I struggle with seeing children truthfully, seeing them as the Lord would see them, I'll, I'll think what a great gift it is to know that through the Holy Ghost, because of priesthood ordinances, I can be blessed to become that kind of person, that kind of mother that I want to become. That's the gift, there's the promise right there. Ordinances and covenants enable us to become that kind of person. That's so, that, that's so empowering in that whether you're a man or whether you're a woman, you can't enter into a fullness of the priesthood in isolation. Neither the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. It's, it's only in that highest covenant and ordinance in the temple of sealing where a man and a woman jointly enter into that covenant together. And isn't it interesting that they kneel across an altar, symbolic of sacrifice, symbolic of the Savior's infinite atonement. So the only thing coming between a man and a woman when they're first pronounced man and wife, the only thing to come between them is a symbol of Christ. It's Jesus that brings them into this greatest level of power that heaven offers to men and women together, and you can't do that in isolation. And now some of you have entered into that, and then your partner has maybe struggled to keep that covenant, and it leaves you wondering, what about me and my eternal destiny and, and our children? I love the promise that if you stay true and faithful, 
to your covenant, to, to the Savior, to the Lord, to God in that instance, then all things will work together for your good. It may take years, it may take decades, and it might not resolve until the next life, but it will resolve. His promise is sure. He will not leave you uh, isolated as long as you stay true and faithful to your covenants that you made at that altar, which, by the way, it's the only covenant that you make in mortality that I know of that involves more than just you and God. For the first time, it's not just you promising God and God promising you things, it's a triangle. It's three people involved, and the person that you're involved with also has gaps, just like you do, and we're working together. And so we just, we just keep moving forward. Okay, Janet, so this next paragraph, the fourth paragraph, it begins with the very first commandment that God ever gave to Adam and Eve, and it pertained to their potential for parenthood as husband and wife. Um, has that commandment ever been rescinded, as far as you know? Ever? No, we, we need it. I was thinking, Tyler, that there's this remarkable researcher who was looking at, out of the founder of the sociology program at Harvard, Carl Zimmerman, one of the founders, and he did this remarkable study where we looked at the rise and fall of civilizations going clear back. And as he's studying Greece and Rome and even beginning with Babylon, um, and then the Roman, uh, the breakup of the Roman Empire and the rise and fall of the European nations, he looked at what is it that predicted this process of rising and falling, and it was the orientation of that culture to the nurturing and development of children within families. And, and it just really was striking to him because there is something that happens to us when we are oriented towards the nurturing of children as a culture and, in, and within families we become different. Mm -hmm. If we thought about, as you described, your weaknesses being exposed, Michael Novak will say, it's incredible how raising children expose you to your, yourself, your, your selfishness, right? The, the, the weaknesses that you have and how it induces growth. It really is the marriage family school, that's Sorokin, the founder, along with Carl Zimmerman would say, the marriage family school is the most democratic source of education because it, it, it invites the greatest growth and development among those who are invested in these children that they care deeply about. And so I think as a culture, when we, when we are oriented towards the development of children, it's a forward thinking, it's the, the highest in these civilizations, it was their peak of creativity and development right, because they're thinking of the future, they're bringing out their best. And that's when God says children are good, they are his greatest good. When you think about the glory of God, that is, that is the great gift, is the, the continuation of life. And, and what a process, right, nurturing them in terms of our growth and development does for us. So when we, when we care about that, I think God says, if you really want to grow, like be oriented towards the development of others. Now, sometimes that means you're not, you won't be married and have your own children. That was my life for a long time. And yet growth and development happens when we care about the development of those around us. That's what goodness really is. So. That is so profound. It, it, it brings to mind this word, that is so alive and well in our culture and society. It's putting self first. It's self-centeredness. It's self-fulfillment, self-gratification. Everything's focused on the me, me, me. I want to be more like the Savior who at any point in his life could have said, I'm, I'm 
not committing any sins. I'm not, I'm not breaking any moral laws. I'm good. I don't need to suffer for all of these people who are struggling. And he could have preserved his, his own self-suffering from occurring, but he didn't. He turned outward. I want to be more like that where, where my life becomes this idea of, Lord, how can I serve? How can I lift? How can I build? Like you're saying, with children, as we turn to that next generation and infuse life in them, it doesn't just bless them. Like Jenna's saying, it it changes us. More for us than I think for them so often. Our own growth and development. Yeah. (laughs) And isn't it interesting then that that very first commandment given to Adam and Eve is to facilitate exactly what all this research and data is showing is that Adam and Eve don't get caught up in Adam and Eve. Live your life. If you want to become like your heavenly parents, well, then do what you can to follow the directions to multiply and replenish the earth as, as it fits different circumstances. Um, you'll notice that that commandment, based on this paragraph here, it's never, it's never been rescinded. It's still, it remains in force today. There's a really powerful statement in the proclamation that says, the sacred powers of procreation are to be employed only between man and woman lawfully wedded. And of all the things that I think I have studied, when we look at the effects of the sexual revolution in particular, which, which was a movement that happened in the late 60s and 1970s that said, I have a right to use my sexuality in the ways that I want to without regard to a responsibility um, for another person. Um, essentially, it was that. Then the fallout from that has been so devastating. It's the reason we've had a dramatic increase in out-of-wedlock childbearing. It's the reason we've had an increase in rapes on campus and the challenges that people experience with sexual exploitation, the sexualization of women. The, the fallout from that is, is really, really a lot to bear and painful. So when we think about how merciful God is when he gives that instruction that these sacred powers that we don't fear that are a gift, that our sexuality is part of our mortality, it's part of the being human, it's a gift of being human, and that using it in the ways that he has taught us to use it is the way to ensure um, the safety and peace and protection for ourselves and for others that we, that we really desire. So there's just so much evidence. Um, one author that I appreciate, and it's painful, but he'll talk about the, the languishing of a generation of men because of the pervasive availability of sex. He'll call it cheap sex. It's, it's, it's a difficult title. But what that's meant for, for decreasing the development, the marriageability of men, um, and, and, the, and what all of that has meant to our culture, the abortion rates, the out-of-wedlock childbearing, sexualization, as was mentioned before, and just the languishing, um, not developing, because of that breaking apart of sexuality and marriage and childbearing, all broken into pieces when it's not put together in the family. There, there are negative effects, there are, there are significant repercussions. We declare the means by which mortal life is created to be divinely appointed um, through prophets, telling us that those means, this this sacred act of sexuality, this powerful gift of expression and communing with another human being has been divinely appointed as part of creating life. And what it means to a child to know that an act of love uh, brought into, into being their existence, that they, that they are part of that union 
that expression of love is is very significant and it's why it's painful right when a when that is not it, it was not an act of love that created life and intentionality can be painful for the fruit that love but when it's brought into marriage husband and wife loving one another sexual expression as a powerful way of communing with one another of expressing love to one another and life coming from that there is a path to beautiful joy Jenna, that's such a beautiful concept, this welcoming children. It's, it's through into the bonds of love in that, in that family setting. So what would you say based on this next paragraph to parents who maybe they, they felt love and they've brought children and they have their family and now more of mortality and more of the struggles of maybe personal and, and familial relationships and, and personal worthiness are starting to get hard. What is our responsibility? We, we, we have children here. What, what, do, yeah. what do we need to do? Yeah. Well, I think one thing that's really helpful to know is marriage is an incredible school. Like, it, it, it pressures our development. And as you know, pressure, whenever pressure is applied, it's not comfortable. It requires us to really face ourselves. It, it requires us to really understand how much exposure do I want in this relationship with this spouse? Do I really want the level of intimacy that God intends for me, right? Exposing myself in that sense. And yes, and we're flawed and we've got problems and challenges and we get impatient and we judge one another and get angry. All of those things are part of our mortal experience. So just accepting that, I think like that's what mortality is filled with is really important. And then, and then as President Irene would say so powerfully, you think about the face of a child when they see their parents contending and the vulnerability that a child enters our lives with and, and respecting and appreciating that what it means for them to have the people who created them at odds with one another is it's a feeling of disconnection within them. And that will be part of their experience. They can come to know that and know that the Lord will help them with that. It says right here, parents have a sacred duty to rear their children in love and righteousness, to provide for their physical and spiritual needs, and to teach them to love and serve one another. Now, these things will be fraught with difficulty because we are mortal and we, I can't, when I became a mother, I thought, are you kidding me? I was such a nice person. Like, what happened to me? And then I, all of a sudden this, and, and to recognize that is why we have it. It's to really pressure our growth and development to be, and we want to grow because we love these people. We want to create that kind of environment of love that they can grow in. And we need the Savior's help. That's why thinking of him with us at that altar every step of the way is so critical. He, he heals, he redeems, he strengthens, he blesses, enables us to grow because he wants us to have the joy in family life that he knows is our eternal destiny. I guess, I guess that's an important point for us to, to hit again and again and again is that sometimes we get this impression that, well, it's my job to do my best as a husband and as a father and as a brother and as a son and in all these different familiar relationships that I have and you can fill in the blank with your own. So I do the best I can and I realize I fall short so Jesus then fills in the gaps. I think the reality is I can't hope to even take one step forward in any of those relationships in isolation of his grace and his mercy and his empowering love for me to be able to do anything worthwhile, any of these principles in here, 
that are good and meaningful cannot be done in isolation of the Lord. That to me is, is the biggest takeaway is I need help. With whatever my situation, my setting is, whatever the real life is separate from the ideal, I need the Lord's help. And if I'm really close to the ideal, guess what? I need the Lord's help. His infinite atonement is going to empower every one of us to take the next step forward in all of those relationships. And I love the fact that that, that fifth paragraph there ends with, it's kind of, it's kind of a prophetic warning mm. to say, God's serious about this. Mm. This isn't just a, yes. you know, something that if you agree with it, great, and if you don't, great, it, it's fine. The wording here says, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers will be held accountable before God for the discharge of these obligations. I don't see that as this, this big weapon, this threat that you behave or else so that we move forward in fear. I see that as more of a, a reality check to say, oh, wait, of all of my responsibilities in life, I don't get that kind of warning with most of them but I do in the home. Because yes. there are a lot of people that can have my church calling that I have right now. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people who can do what I do at work. There are a lot of people who can do what I do in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. But I'm my wife's husband, and I'm my children's father, mm -hmm. and I'm never going to get released from that, mm -hmm. and I'm responsible for that. That he entrusts us with these vulnerable spirits, right, and then our our intimacy with them demands such a high moral responsibility to them. And that's how family relationships are, which is why which is why I think sometimes we can enter, I know this, I can enter into a place of shame that quickly when I know I should not have treated this child I love that way, I should not have done that. And we learn from that experience. And we also, just as you described so beautifully, we, we receive the Lord's mercy when Elder Rasband talked about, Jim Rasband talked about just the justice of God, that beautiful promise that His atonement covers the wrong we have done to others. Mm -hmm. and I don't know where else that would matter more to us than in our family lives when we, when we know we haven't treated one another as, as we would want to and yet he steps in and says, come with me, I'll help you grow, I'll heal them, I'll enable them to grow from it, and you'll become a better, better able to do what, I, what our heavenly parents are trying to help us learn to do. I love that. If, if we were to look at a, at a simple graphic of, say, person A and person B, and person A did something to hurt or offend or, or belittle, did, he, Person A did something bad to person B. We often recognize very readily how much person A needs the help of the Savior Jesus Christ and His infinite atonement. But some of you watching have been person B quite frequently in your life because of certain situations that you found yourself in, and you've been hurt. You've been, you've been betrayed, you've been maybe abused in some situations, and many of those will come in family settings often because of the proximity issue. Brothers and sisters, our, our point is we all need the infinite atonement of Jesus Christ just as much as everybody else, whether we're on the giving or the receiving end of wrongs, of sin, or of abuse. We all need help to move forward and to fulfill these principles, and gratefully, he's, he's more than willing to extend that grace if we'll ask for it and do the best we can to, to tap into it. Yes. 
Which brings us now to what has probably become, I don't know, is it saying, is it, is it going too far to say that this sixth paragraph is kind of the, the central um, practical uh, boots on the ground, meat and potatoes, what, whatever analogy you want to use for the proclamation, this becomes more of a, of a handbook of, yes. okay, these are nice principles, but yes. how? Yes. How do I do it? Paragraph six for me is the how. Yes. Oh, I, I, it's so beautiful how it begins by telling us happiness in family life is most likely to be achieved when founded upon the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that that, to know that he will help us, that his teachings will guide us, that the Sermon on the Mount is all about the family. <laughs> when I got married, I was 34. It was a miracle to find Mike. And, and I had studied family science and been worked with therapists, right, um, teaching me about family therapy and marriage therapy. And I'll never forget the first time we had a difficulty post-marriage and the feelings that I had. And all of a sudden it was like, oh my goodness, really the answer is, is the Savior's teachings about meekness and humility and patience and hope. And that Mosiah 319, right, to become submissive and meek and humble really was the key to power in relationships. Here, the greatest marriage therapist that we could imagine had taught the principles that would lead to happiness and healing in relationships. So it starts out by telling us, you will be okay because I have sent a redeemer and he has taught the path towards successful marriage and family relationships. Now, this part, Jenna, is uh, I would imagine you have seen loads of studies and lots of data mm -hmm. to verify these next principles. Happiness in family life is most likely, you'll notice it didn't say it's guaranteed, it's, it's formulaic. You do this, 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 yes. this, you're going to have a happy family and your kids are going to turn out perfect. It doesn't say that. No. <laughs> it says happiness in family life is most likely to be achieved when founded upon the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then that next part, successful marriages and families are established and maintained on principles of, as you were saying, faith, <laughs> prayer, repentance, forgiveness. Now, I'm just going to stop with this one faith. Do you remember how, and it was President Iring who would talk about that the foundation of a family and President Packer is faith. Mm -hmm. When you choose to marry, when you choose to have children, when you choose to be in a family, which we chose to do, then that is a path of faith. And, and because we can't ensure, we can't ensure things, but we trust God will guide and direct us and help us. I, I'll, when I was choosing to get married, um, there was, interestingly, there was a faculty member who stopped by my office and he said, now, you know Mike, my husband, comes from a divorced family, and you know the data about that. And it was, a, it was an interesting moment for me, and I said, yes, I do. I know that. And, and to think of the power of the atonement in my life, in his life, mm -hmm. to heal to heal us both from a variety of things, and that I felt the Lord say, I will go before your face. I will be on your right hand and on your left. And that's what he tells us. You pursue this in righteousness, and I will be with you. You can, you can have that faith. The next one, prayer. Tyler, the research on prayer is <laughs> unbelievable. So thankfully, there are people that have researched this. Like, now, these aren't, these aren't Latter-day Saints. These are not Latter-day Saints. No, right? here's this Frank is... Fincham out of Florida. And he, he decides to tackle this issue of prayer. Does prayer really work? How does it affect marriages? And one of the things that's just incredible is when people have consistent prayer, 
conflict, their capacity to resolve conflict mm -hmm. is so strengthened. And, and I think what's happening is you're, you are together drawing on the power of God in your relationship right then and there. And you know that it's a place of expressing love to one another and appreciation and gratitude that you might not normally do. Um, it's a place to pray for that person. And that what happens in the heart of those people is really incredible. Sexual relationship improves, conflict resolution improves. Prayer is one of those, it's, I'll sometimes think, from a, from a research standpoint, it's like the magic, it's the magic bullet to pray, so, invite God into your life. So that old adage, a family that prays together stays together. Is it like shows up in the research. True in the data yes. than we would have thought. It's incredible. And we have scholars at BYU yeah. that have worked on that too. Isn't it, isn't it fascinating if you stop and think about what she just said here? Cast your mind back to your own life. Have you ever, have you ever overheard somebody telling somebody else about you and you heard them saying nice things about you, how did that make you feel? Now stop and think about what you can do in a spirit of prayer when you gather a family together and when you can talk to God and voice how much you love these individuals. And if they're struggling or if you're struggling, to plead with God to forgive you for the struggles that you've had individually or collectively and to, to to thank heaven for specific things that these people have brought into your home, into your family, or into your life individually. Yeah. It, it has to be therapeutic. It, it, it has to have an impact yeah. in the data, and, and you're does, saying it does. It does, Tyler. It's really beautiful. And it I think does. It's, it's beautiful to think of the sequence. So you've got faith, right, which is a turning to God, prayer, which is inviting him into your life and his power into your life. And then what it changes is the capacity for repentance. Interesting. And repentance is so core to marriage and any relationship. And, and I don't mean repentance where it's, you know, you're bad and you need it. It's, it's the, what repentance really means is an honest acknowledgement of what's really going on in your own heart around something. So I think about a father who is at work and feels vulnerable at work because he's not as cool or great as the other people, comes home and he's a little angry or off with his kids, right, or his wife. And, and what's really happening in there is I'm feeling afraid and I feel, I feel shame about myself and, and an honesty, that's what repentance is, it's, an, it's a willingness to be open with other people as opposed to blaming or entering into a world of shame. So in the whole therapy world, Brene Brown and everyone else, right, would say that that whole world of shame and blame that impacts our relationships, well, the counter to it is empathy and repentance, right? It's an honesty with oneself, inviting God in. Which, which by the way, it, that couplet generally likes to go together, repentance and forgiveness, and forgiveness. <laughs> right? That's so. It's pretty hard if you're really good at repenting. That's yes. great. Yes. But the Lord has told us if you can't forgive others, then He can't forgive you. So, in the midst of all of our need to repent, we also need to get really good at forgiving. And I can't do either one of those without the grace of the Lord empowering me to do both of them. Which is just so when you feel repentant, right? You're so grateful for the mercy of others and the Lord for you you can't help but want to forgive, right? It's, it, and so the two really are so powerful. And forgiveness is Frank, Frank Frencham's done work on forgiveness too. And what a powerful force forgiveness is in marriage. That's offering forgiveness is, is a real gift. So Janet, what would you say to people who have been hurt deeply yes. and they're struggling to forgive? Yes. 
I think sometimes we we talk about forgiveness in way too simplistic of mm -hmm. terms. Um, forgiveness really comes to, it's really true that we can't receive the atonement of Jesus Christ unless we feel accountable for our choices and decisions. Mm -hmm. Mercy, mercy follows accountability. And sometimes in relationships, we need to help, we hold ourselves accountable and we also help others be held accountable. And that there's, there's a really important respect for boundaries about oneself. And, and so sometimes you can be in an abusive dynamic, mm -hmm. right, where one's not respecting themselves and not respecting the other or not, right, receiving respect from the other. And that can take a long time to forgive, to mm -hmm. understand forgiveness. And I think it really giving ourselves space to understand the Savior's work, which is mercy and justice and accountability and forgiveness all together, right, enables us to, to really understand what it means to offer forgiveness mm -hmm. to another person. That's, it's really empowering, this concept, because what it does is it gives you it gives you some oxygen in the air to breathe mm -hmm. and to to experience the Savior's mm -hmm. infinite power of His atonement over time. That for many of you, forgiveness isn't going to be an event. Forgiveness, the way you're describing yes. it, is going to be a process. It's part of it's part of the covenant path for you to become more like Jesus. He is a God of mercy and love and compassion and forgiveness yes. to people who, quite frankly, don't deserve it. Yes. And I want to be more like him. So sometimes, depending on the depth of the hurt, yes. it's going to take a little longer. And instead of shaming yourself or beating yourself yes. up, because why, why am I still bothered by this? It yes. happened months or years ago. Why, why is it still eating? It's okay. Keep going back to him calling upon him for mercy to help you learn how to drop that burden at his feet and forgive that person for whatever wrong was committed. Yes. It's beautiful. I think forgiveness, it's interesting that forgiveness can be tied, right, infidelities or betrayals of some kind. We can think, well, forgiveness looks like trusting everyone perfectly again. Mm. And those are very different things. Different thing. we, can, we can have a heart of compassion for someone and also not trust them at the same time. And it would be wise probably not to trust them and cases. still stay married to them, right? And, and work through things. But, but I think, right, create, like you talked about, this breathing room for growth, for everyone's kind of growth and an honesty and respect for our feelings and for, for those goals to have a, a relationship based in forgiveness. Now, these next items that come in the list, respect. Mm -hmm. We've, we've talked a lot about that on both sides, mm -hmm. and love, compassion, mm -hmm. work. We Again, you could take each one of these and, and spend hours exploring what the scriptures say about each of them. I love the fact that the proclamation has them in here in this quick-hitting list. It's beautiful because it doesn't matter what your family dynamic looks like. It doesn't matter what your past struggles have been. You're most likely to find happiness and joy moving forward based on these principles. That's what we're taught. And and they are true principles whether you believe in God or not. Yes. If you just do these things and notice how it ends, after compassion and work, mm -hmm. it finishes with, and wholesome recreational activities. I like that. <laughs> I they do throw too. that in there. The, that's a nice one to add to our list. It's really important. But it's not just about, okay, let's gather and, and be reverent and have all, all these gospel-oriented things, but Successful families can go out and recreate yes, together. Yes, and sometimes that's the hardest part for some people to do, I think. It, it is as beautiful to have that work and wholesome recreation. Respect, you hear, you can hear all the John Gottman work on, on what's the strongest predictor when he was watching, when he's watching couples interact and predicting divorce with incredible success rate of protecting, predicting divorce. He'll say, when you see contempt, 
which mm. is when you see a berating, an eye rolling, a dismissiveness, a you are less than I am feeling. Um, that's that's a really toxic element in marriage and in relationships. And sometimes as a parent, I can be that way. And I'll think, what does respect mean? Respect is a very powerful. And then work. Think of all the fa family life is filled with work. And it's so wonderful that the Lord tells Adam and Eve, cursed shall be the ground for thy sake. That's right. Dishes and laundry and and yard work and all of these things that the research on this is so powerful. What happens when people are working together? like you're doing dishes as a family, and they'll say the hierarchy goes away. A mother is standing beside a son, and that hierarchy goes away, and all of a sudden he's opening up about things that he wouldn't normally open up about, because in, in that dynamic we are equals, caring for one another. That's why I think when men and women do that together, husbands and wives and children, it's a very powerful thing. And then you end it with like the wholesome recreation, right? That's a good point. <laughs> Work together and play together. So again, regardless of where you are currently, as you look to the future and as you look to the Lord, I think he's given us a nice handbook. We don't, we don't have to go out and figure out some, some new program and, and design it from the ground up. He's given us some, he's given us the playbook right here right. for building a successful family. Mm -hmm. Now, we get into the part that uh, refers to various roles, and this has caused some people some struggles over time. It says, by divine design, fathers are to preside over their families in love and righteousness and are responsible to provide for the necessities of life and production, uh, protection for their families. Taylor has some things to share regarding this word preside. So, Janet, we have in this one paragraph we've been discussing, by divine design, fathers are to preside over their families in love and righteousness. And some people have taken the word preside to mean they're in charge, they're the dictator, they make all the decisions. And so unfortunately that has happened in cases. Um, and or, I think it can be really, it can be stressful for women to hear that word preside, Yeah. right? Does that mean that I, he's the president and I just follow what he says? And we have been given such clear and beautiful instruction about the equality in marriage and the counseling together and that there isn't a president. So wonderful Elder Perry saying there is no president, right? And that this is, this, a ceiling in, endows both of you with that leadership and responsibility and the powers and gifts to guide and direct that family together. So I'm glad you're acknowledging this because I think that word preside is yeah. tricky and has a lot of language that can be difficult to, to clearly see from a gospel perspective. Yeah, let me play upon this a bit. The word preside um, actually comes from, have you guys ever seen this before where I break words apart? Is this new for people? I, I'm just teasing here. <laughs> <laughs> so, and actually the word um, sit, it actually means front, I can't even spell, or before, or even with. So <clears throat> imagine preside means to sit with, okay? You sit with people. Let's think about councils. We sit with people in council. Families can be a form of a council where you sit with people and counsel on things, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Now, I want to actually tie this into something that happens in the Old Testament. Amos 3.7, you might remember, says, Surely the Lord will do nothing, save he shall reveal his secret to the prophets. It's interesting, the word secret, if you actually look at the Hebrew word, is counsel. So 
if we actually look at Old Testament, um, the way the Old Testament conceived and expressed and thought about and actually taught how God's counsels worked, is that God has a heavenly counsel, and the heavenly hosts are there counseling with God, learning and talking together, and the prophets are invited in to sit with God in council. There's a big council, and things are decided in council, and the prophet is sent as a messenger to reveal what the council decided. So in marriages, so presiding leads sit with, maybe convene the council, maybe make sure that council is happening. It doesn't mean I'm in charge, it's whatever I say, it's actually are you taking upon yourself the responsibility to ensure that everybody is sitting together, all taking their time to talk and for everyone to be heard. I love that too. So that's very powerful that presiding is actually about embracing, bringing in, empowering, and making sure voices are heard and listened to, and that as much as possible, we can get to a, um, a unanimity, a shared spirit on a topic, and that if anybody has to become a messenger, a prophet to go send out, that we send out to teach other people, we can do that. Now, typically family members don't send out a child as a prophet to go tell the the neighbors, here's what we all decide we're having for dinner and where we're going on family vacation. But that's how I understand the word preside, that it's actually the sacred duty of empowering people to be heard. And I think that's so consistent with what prophets teach us about that. You'll think that special role that fathers have to ensure, and it just turns the whole notion on its head, right, as opposed to being in charge. It's that responsibility to ensure that all are heard all are equals, that that process is protected, and that he's responsible to make sure that happens is a really powerful, I think yeah. that interdependence is, is very powerful. It's what good parents do, right? Yeah. It's that protecting the process of development and that your whole investment is in their development as opposed to you, their conformity to you, right? right? Them developing the capacity for goodness in their own lives. And it's so beautiful to think about how God does that, how our Father does that for us. So to tie into that description of presiding um, that Taylor and Jenna have been talking about here, the examples that we have in the ultimate example being Jesus, who the Savior himself came down and he presides over everything in the church and in the world. He didn't come down thinking, what can I get from these people? Presiding that I want to try to do is, is even more than the sit with. It's it's serve, love, give my life yes. for them, infuse, infuse any good that I can because we all know we've got struggles and we infuse plenty of bad, but let me give them as much good as I possibly can. Um, so it, it takes it away from a ruling power and more to a let me work together with you to try to connect with heaven. Yeah, it's, and it's beautiful, Tyler, the way you talked about it because it's like a different flavor of nurture. It's actually a way of nurturing life and facilitating growth, but it's kind of a little different flavor of than we typically think of. And then when you think about those roles of providing and protecting, the research on providing, sometimes we, I think we dismiss because women can provide well and, and earn economically, we've dismissed the real profound gift it is to have fathers be providers of, of the needs of their family. And just the data on that is unbelievable. When children are 
uh, come from married families, the likelihood of them being in poverty is so much less. It's like 48% versus 11% because there's a father working together with a mother in providing. Wow. And that means a whole different trajectory for that child's life. So providing is a big deal. Protecting. It's sometimes I've heard people say, describe that when a child grows up with their father in the home and who's monitoring their activities and that the neighborhood knows there's a dad there, it's literally like this shield around that child that you can't see, that, that others who would target them potentially are, are held off by this beautiful protection from a father. Daughters who grew up with fathers, it's really remarkable how her, his presence in her life and closeness to her will, they'll say, set the trajectory for her sexual path. So her engagement, her way of relating to men in her life in sexual ways, that father, it's as if he sets for her what love looks like that is not going to be exploitative, that is, that is genuine and caring, and what a dynamic that is good with a man would be in her life, and how powerful that is. Boys, boys growing up with fathers, the likelihood when they don't of being incarcerated or having kind of antisocial, as we know some of this data, right? You just think fathers, that providing, protecting, presiding means so much. And it's not that women are weak, right? It's not that we need to say women are, are weaker. Um, it is this power that each one has that with a divine endowment and psychological orientation, that allows them to influence children's development in unique ways that are equally important. So, so to, to build on that, notice the next part where it says mothers are primarily responsible for the nurture of their children. Now here to me is the key. In these sacred responsibilities, fathers and mothers are obligated to help one another as equal partners. You know, we were we were having this discussion in my in my home uh, just a few months ago. Actually, my wife and I were talking about this this particular concept, and she made a beautiful observation that kind of shifted my whole view of this. She said, "You know, we often just read the line about what the father's role in it and what the mother's role is, and then we stop there, <laughs> but that next line brings them together as." a whole, as equal partners. And then she started to point out just that very day, just just simple things that, that she does as a mother day in and day out, and nobody, no reporters come. She's not on, she's not on a video, nobody's seeing it. It just happens over and over and over. And what it's she, these things, what right, What she described Tyler? was <laughs> presiding. she was presiding. She was with them, and she was making sure that certain things were happening and moving forward. She was providing for their needs in ways that I'll never be able to yes, provide. Yes. She was giving them comfort and teaching and training and shoring them up and answering their questions, providing for all kind, physical, spiritual, mental, emotional, psychological, all of these different ad, uh, attributes. She's providing that. And providing protection. It's my a children are facing temptation and opposition in this world just like you and your family face. And she shared some experiences where that child would share some temptations and some struggles, and the fact that she's sitting with them, she said she could almost feel this tangible shield from just her very motherly presence alone. Yes 
protecting them power. Yes. Yes. from the powers of the darkness yes. that, that's seeking to destroy them. And she said, she pointed out, Tyler, you, you do a lot of nurturing. You do a lot of nurturing <laughs> with the kids, especially the younger ones, the, the way it works in our home. And it's different for everybody, but there's a whole lot of nurturing that fathers can do. So rather than creating this, this is my domain and that's yours, yes. it's more of a, this is our domain. I need to make sure that these things are happening, but I'm not doing this alone and you're not doing that alone. We're doing this as equal partners together. Tyler, you'll laugh that um, I'll never forget my husband, Mike, had never had, he doesn't have any siblings, he's an only child, and so never been with him, never changed a diaper before, before it was our kids, and doesn't have a lot of cousins or anything like that. And I will never forget, we brought our daughter home from the hospital. And he immediately, it seems like within a day or two, is doing calisthenics with her, throwing her up in the air, doing all this tickling and tossing. And within maybe a year, I was researching the distinct ways that mothers and fathers nurture and bond with and, and do these different things. And, and it said, women, coo and cuddle, literally the oxytocin that floods your body in the process of attaching with that baby, who needs that attachment? And mothers, when we look at today, we can watch the brain actually develop and the interaction that that mother has with the baby and what it actually does in terms of developing the capacity for relationships on the right side of the brain and moral understanding and all of these things. But then the father bonds, like a year and a half, that bond from a father becomes really important. And the same oxytocin, like he's being flooded with oxytocin and she is, he's also getting vasopressin and other, is eliciting cooing and cuddling from her and tickling and tossing from him. And roughhousing. <laughs> and roughhousing. And that, that's really critical. And it's not, I'm not, not all, right, men and women are this way, express it in the same way, but the distinctions as well as the overlap are such powerful way of talk, and that's what the proclamation does. It, it allows for the distinction and also this very shared investment in children that allows mothers and fathers to each bring their uniqueness and influence those domains in powerful ways and share it, right? Share that responsibility share together. It. It's those, those two halves coming together to make a whole wherever possible. That paragraph ends with, with again, the exception, because there will be exceptions. We, we've taught the rules, the, the, the patterns, but then we have to acknowledge the fact that we don't live in an ideal world. So it says disability, death, or other circumstances may necessitate individual adaptation, and extended families should lend support when needed. Did you notice that? Extended families should lend support, not condemnation, not self-righteous judgment, not, well, we're better than you, and if you had only listened to me 20 years ago, you wouldn't be in this situation. It's that idea of when somebody shows up at the emergency room having a stroke or a heart attack, the, the doctor doesn't sit down and lecture them about their lack of taking care of their diet or their exercise or their physical health. The doctor simply helps work on the symptoms that they're being presented with at that moment. I think it's a good pattern for us as extended families to help in those situations. So as the proclamation now closes with these last two paragraphs, it, it ends with this idea of the serious nature of familial relationships and those, those physical and mental and emotional connections and bonds that, that our heavenly parents are asking us to try to form and nurture and grow in this life. When it says we warn because that's what prophets, that's part of a prophet's job is to warn. We warn 
that individuals who violate covenants of chastity, who abuse spouse or offspring, or who fail to fulfill family responsibilities will one day stand accountable before God. And it talks about all these prophecies that have been given in ancient scripture and in ancient times, and they're saying the thing that will cause those, those prophecies to be fulfilled with destruction is disregarding the, the revelations and the, and the uh, directions given in this very setting of the family. Yes. I think that's significant. Tyler, I love this calling upon all of us to promote measures designed to maintain and strengthen the family. I remember as a student seeing all that data and looking at what family structure means in children's lives, what it means to society, what it means to our economic well-being, and just feeling like this document is a gospel of love. It, it, it is teaching us how to be protected from mm -hmm. things that would harm us. It's guiding us in the path of happiness and peace. It's showing us what love looks like and how to help help have that in our family lives. And what a merciful and kind God to lay out, right? As if in one document, it distilled what thousands of research studies have shown about what puts people at risk, what's harmful, what's difficult for children, what's difficult for spouses, and puts it all in this beautiful document to say, this is direction to experiencing love and joy and peace in your lives. And so when we defend it, we can feel totally sure that this is a work of love in defending the proclamation. Yeah. Which, by the way, is a very interesting uh, way to look at this, a document of love, because because of the way it's been implemented by some individuals and by some families, others in their family don't feel like it's a document of love because they feel beat up by it. They yes. feel like they've been abused by it. But, in the way told some you people, don't belong or exactly. you're not part of this or you're yes yes so if you look at it from this perspective on a scale from a far uh, opposing side to another far opposing side you and i today we we live in an environment i i don't know if it's because of social media or the internet or because of the connectivity of of ideas and how quickly things can be shared out there mm -hmm. But the trend today in our society, in our culture, is you get a difficult topic brought up. And, and surrounding family issues, there are a lot of difficult top topics that, that come up. And our society's tendency, propensity, maybe desire, I don't know, is to quickly flee yes. to one extreme or the other, to take a really far position and then proceed to lob contentious uh, fights and accusations yes. and barbs at the other yes. extreme. I love, Janet, what you're saying that when you come together in love, it's going to be not on either of the two extremes which are going to be um, fighting and contending. It's going to be more from this position of let's come to the middle and have some of those really hard conversations where we may not understand where somebody's coming from or why they're doing what they're doing or why they believe what they believe, but what a great opportunity to fulfill that, that baptismal covenant obligation to mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort instead of contending with those that stand in need of our comfort, but rather to come and ask lots of questions 
and seek to understand deeply and plead with God throughout the process to really love them. Yes, yes, there's so much power. I think some of the most powerful teaching moments I've had is when a student says, I felt pain by the proclamation because of this, because of this line, and I experience, uh, I feel different than that. And to have other students rally and say, even as that student says, I have a testimony of Jesus Christ, I'm struggling to understand this part. And other students rally around them and say, I can see why that would be difficult. And I affirm your testimony in Jesus Christ. And as you turn to him, like all of us, right, who fall outside of the ideal, as you turn to him, he will teach you the divine pattern and he will enable you to grow personally in how you can better find that path of happiness that he's trying to teach us about here. So it is a gift. So now as we conclude, let's go back to where we first started. And it's with the very title of the document. You'll notice the way that they worded it. It's called The Family. We are all part of the family of God. And now he's given us all of this. Notice he says then, a proclamation to the world. It's not just a proclamation to those who are members of the church or to those who are on the covenant path or to those who are out in the world. It's to all the world. These principles are true, and as Jenna's talking, if we can affirm those good parts that we have and bring all those other struggles and come together yes. to this position of love and understanding and and asking more questions of each other and of heaven, as we plead for more direction and more answer to be given, it will come. Jenna, from your unique uh, position as having researched and studied and spent so much time in the literature and in the studies out there regarding family issues, as well as your own personal experience and your, your, your scriptural experience, um, what, what would be your major takeaway for people to, to focus on as they study the proclamation together? My favorite thing about the proclamation, Tyler, is that it tells me what kind of eternal family I come from. It lays out that we come from heavenly parents who honor marital vows, who are, who are loving, who nurtured us before this life, and who, who have provided a setting for us uh, to, be grow, to grow in love and righteousness. It teaches me what that eternal family that all of my fellow human beings are part of. And, that is, and, and what it does is it guides us, it provides for me a guide for what that eternal pattern is and that it is my destiny to be part of that effort of creating eternal families that are that way. That the Lord will lead us along. He will shepherd us in the path and the patterns that are divine around family and enable us to have what we most desire. Are the deepest yearnings of the human soul are to be bound together in relationships of love and closeness. That's what every human being yearns for. And that is, that is entirely what His desire is for us. And He is... He will shepherd us along in being able to establish and grow into the kind of people that can have those relationships forever. And the proclamation is a great gift. President Oak says the proclamation and the gospel of Jesus Christ are the two divine teachings to lead us into the path of eternal life. You can't have one without the other because this plan is a plan of families 
and it is based in the grace and mercy and redemption provided by our Savior to enable us to have those eternal relationships forever. Know that he lives and know that he loves you. And we leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.